Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Sorry, Kieran, I was probably a bit loud there when I said hello. I was trying to wake myself up after yesterday's... There's some nil-nil draws that are full of exciting, attractive, flowing football. And there are some that are full of the opposition team throwing themselves to the ground for no apparent reason every 45 seconds. What a dreadful game that was. But you had a lovely time this weekend, Kieran, didn't you? Or this week, didn't you? You had your first European game. Was it exciting? It, it, it was exciting. Um Great atmosphere, uh, good performance from AEK. I think you, you, yeah, there'd be loads of people moaning, but you, sometimes you've got to say, well, the, the opposition did a number on you and, and give them credit for it. So so that. Um, and then the following night, I, I went to see the Sisters of Mercy. Oh, wow. I've, I've, been, I've been watching the Sisters since. The first time I saw Sisters was, I think it was 1984. So, you know, it's, it's a long-standing thing. And for the whole of the gig, they, they forgot to mic up the singer. <laughs> so, so you go... What's what's going on? Look, we can't hear the singer. <laughs> and, and, and then and then the guitarist threw a wobbly and flounced off stage. And it was sort of so there was there was, there was sort of a, a guitarist and backing singer who then became sort of the main singer. And the main Andrew Eldridge was was prowling around, sort of posing some really strange shapes as if he, he thought he'd become Kate Bush. Um, and yeah, very surreal experience. I've I've been in show business long enough, Kieran, to know that if they if they didn't turn his mic on for the whole of the show, there's a reason. <laughs> you, you might accidentally leave the mic off for one song. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's what happens when the Sisters of Mercy reach a certain age, isn't it? Really, they just, well, he's, he's sixty-four. Yeah, what are yeah. we coming here for? We're, we're doing a concert, dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, is it? Can you set an argument, Kieran? I keep saying AEK. But yesterday in the pub, there was a faction that says you, it's Ike. Yeah, I think I think they were going Ike. Oh, is they as going in, Ike? As, that's, yeah, that's as in David, I think. Oh, right, I see. And we, well, the big question, of course, is Kim, as reported in some of the newspapers this week, do you think the Ike players would have been impressed by the seven flavours of porridge available <laughs> at, at, at the Ike? Seven, seven flavours. We got up to four in the pub yesterday. We couldn't get beyond four flavours of porridge. <laughs> <laughs> and number three was oats. <laughs> right, let's do this. Let's do some football finance chat, Kieran, yes, shall we? Um, we've, got, we've got some cracking questions. I know you've got to be off to see Brighton <clears throat> probably thrash Bournemouth. We've got some really good questions, including that one from last week we held over. But first of all, Kieran, some big news coming out of the England women's football team. Yes, the dispute between the England players and the Football Association has been resolved. This was mainly to do with uh, commercial fees, but also reading the, the the comments from Millie Bright, who's effectively the representative of the England team as, as captain, so and rightly so, um, just an acknowledgement that, A, they, they love the facilities that are on offer at St George's Park, um, and they, they made reference to the United States women's national team who I think it's fair to say are are quite activist and, mm, and yeah, you know, have absolutely. which which is great um and I think the England players you know, want to have a platform to to articulate their their views and concerns so the fees for the world cup they were actually set by fifa but the, the England women's team yeah it sells out wembley um you know, they've They've become uh, brands in their own right, which is really good. And sometimes there's conflicts of interest between the individual and, and the, the England team and so on. Um, I, I spoke to our secret lioness, 
and uh, had had a conversation. I said, "Okay, yeah, is, is this is this true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think things are things are a long way forwards compared to where they were um, a few months ago. I, th- I think there's mutual trust and respect, which is always very good. And I think we'd said ourselves on the show before the World Cup took place that as, as go, to go back to Nick Narcos, Nick DeMarco's you know, great comment: negotiation is far better than litigation. So. Both parties have got round the table, un- tried to get an understanding of each other's position. The the football association does have a responsibility t- towards increasing the grassroots of of uh, you know, women's and girls football, and therefore not all of the money can go to the the national team. And I think national team acknowledge that as well. They feel that they've also driven forwards the profile of the game, which they have, of course, spectacularly with with their success. Um, and I, it looks like this this issue is is now sort of you know, done and dusted. Yeah, so we we don't actually know the figures involved, Kieran, do we? But we assume that there's now parity with the men's team on performance related bonuses. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as as far as the, the bonuses are concerned, ultimately they're determined by FIFA, and, and I think what FIFA have done, and you know, we we give, I think we always give FIFA a fair hearing. Um, FIFA have paid the monies directly to the players. Oh, okay. And that's got to be applauded because you know, and I know, that sometimes if you give the money to certain football associations, it is a habit of disappearing into the ether. So the the players have been paid directly by by FIFA in in respect of performance fees in terms of the progress they made in the stadium. Um, But it's the commercial issues, which were the sticking point. There's no doubt that uh, the the English FA has had a a couple of sticky years um, with with, uh, Wembley being during COVID, not generating any money. There's also the the ongoing issues of of Wembley, that it was cost control went out of the window. Um, and there's still legacy issues outstanding there, but it, it looks as if uh, both parties say this, this is a fair compromise. We do try to be fair to FIFA, Kieran. You do, which is very big of you, considering they owe you money. But if, well, if, well, they don't owe me money because well, the, but, the, fee, the fee was zero, apparently. <laughs> so, well, they will invoice them for that then, Kieran, and see what happens. <laughs> yes. in, invoice them for that plus VAT. But if, if they're playing. Paying the money directly to the to the players, which is laudable, as you say, it also implies that they know who the national associations are who would take the money anyway. So they should be doing something about it rather than trying to circumvent these people who would take the players' money. They shouldn't just be giving it direct to the players. They should be saying, right, these, these associations can no longer be part of FIFA. But then, as you know, they would, those associations wouldn't be able to vote Gianni Infantino in without opposition, would they? So, well, uh, oh, pure, pure coincidence. Yes, of course. Yes. Right now, questions, Kieran. But this is the question. The first one is the one we held over from last week because it's a it's a long question with, I guess, a, a, a fairly long answer. But it's it's a good question, and it's one that <clears throat> I think summarises what a lot of football fans are talking about on a daily basis around the world. And it comes from Jake Michael Widlake Hughes. And Jake says, what are your thoughts slash predictions on the long-term state of the finances in football? Do you think transfer prices, salaries and owners willing to fund huge losses will continue to increase indefinitely? And therefore, the gap between, let's say, the big six, soon to be seven, and the rest of the Premier League will keep growing. This growing gap could also apply to the Premier League compared to other leagues around Europe too. Will we be seeing three hundred million pound plus transfers, a million pound a week salaries, increasing club debts, and even more losses in the near future? Or do you think some common sense will prevail and some sort of reset button will be pressed, or something like a dramatically reduced TV deal will occur to stop these seemingly out of control numbers? And I, I suppose the pricey of that, Kim, as most football fans put it, is when will the bubble burst? Um, the bubble will not burst. Football is more popular than ever. It is more successful than ever in, in terms of viewing figures. You've only got to look at the recent deals signed by the Premier League with overseas broadcasters, the American deal, or the Scandinavian deal, um, and so on, to, to realise that there is there is huge interest um, in the product. And I, I don't like to call it a product, yeah, because we, but I think we have to be 
sort of practical here. Um, looking at Jake's sort of specific comments, I I, I went this morning um, and I dug up all of the accounts, or I went to my spreadsheet and picked out all of the accounts of the clubs in the first season of the Premier League. And there is a lot of talk about transfer fees. But if you take a look at the total amount of money spent in 1992-93, transfer fees worked out as 32% of the total income generated by Premier League clubs. And if we go to the last season, for which we have data, which is season 21-22, because clubs haven't produced, um, it was up to 33%. So there hasn't actually been a change. We are we are still we are paying a lot of money out for transfer fees, but as a proportion of the total income, it's still broadly the same. So it's a function ultimately. You know, there's a lot of talk about wages, and and wages have accelerated ahead of income. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So so wages are up three thousand six hundred percent compared to the first season. And to put that into context, inflation's up 94. So, so footballers' wages have certainly accelerated ahead. Um, income's up 2,600%. So, so players are getting a greater proportion, but it's still only around about 66%. So it's two-thirds of the total income. Now, UEFA's red line is 70, uh, and there's never been any indication that I think it will go to 70. With regards to what's going to happen in the future, is the gap between the big six going to accelerate? Yes, it is. We, we've seen uh, Liverpool this week, for example. It's it's signed three commercial deals, not for, and these are minor deals with uh, blue chip companies around the world, which, which together are worth thirty five million pounds. I uh, said so this isn't the front of shirt. This this isn't the the kit manufacturing deal. It's just organisations that want to be associated with Liverpool Football Club because Liverpool Football Club is a fantastic brand in its yeah. own right. It's got a global yeah. fan base. Um, and, th- and that's not going to happen at Brighton and it's not going to happen at Palace and it's not going to happen at Bournemouth or Fulham. So, so that, that gap is going to grow. Um, there's no doubt that the owners of clubs such as Liverpool and Manchester United, that wasn't enough for them and that's why they tried to take over and have an even greater share of revenue through Project Big Picture domestically in the Super League. So I think there will be continual pressures from the the bigger clubs to not only to, to have more money from the pie, because the pie is growing, but to have a bigger slice of that pie. And I think that's that, for me, I think is, is the biggest tension within football, because having good competitive balance i think is good for it's, it's good for us as fans because you don't want matches to be walkovers you want to have an element of hope and i think it's actually good for the product as a whole because what's the point in turning on the television if you are an overseas fan if you know what the result's going to be 99% of the time and, and that the premier league is good in, in that regard that you can have smaller smaller clubs in terms of finances uh, still turnover so i i don't think there is a bubble that is going to be burst uh, and you know this isn't a criticism of of jake thomas you know he says do you think that common sense will prevail well how how do you find common sense yeah there, there's a lot of comment with regards to the level of pay of players I, I work in the world of finance as well. I know how much you know bankers' bonuses are. Um, those go and and those go on until you're fifty or sixty, you know, until you choose to retire. Footballers footballers do have a shorter career, so I, I per, per, you know, my perception is that the TV deals will continue to grow. The use of technology will become further embedded in football, and that will add uh, another layer of revenue for football clubs and I don't I honestly don't think the numbers are out of control as far as the Premier League is concerned they are out of control in the championship but there's a myriad of reasons and and why are they out of control in the championship it's because clubs in the championship want to get into the Premier League how do you address that gap yeah that's that's the existential question for football 
<clears throat> it's too early in the morning for existential questions, Kieran. We, we've got enough questions to worry about of our own. It, it could happen to Palace. There's, there's still a couple of um, countries in the United Arab Emirates yet to decide whether to buy a football club or not. Um, I'd, I'd be perfectly happy if they had a meeting with Simon Jordan. Just a meeting, Kieran, to see what happened. A me- meeting with Simon Jordan? Simon, jo- yeah, uh, Simon Jordan did us. Oh, my God. That's you did a- say Simon Jordan. I did say Simon Jordan. That's terrible, wasn't it? Well, what, that, well that's a... That's the corollary of the hangover I'm putting that down to. <laughs> well, yeah, they could have a meeting with Simon Jordan and and hopefully buy Talk Sport and sack him from that. That'd be that'd be that'd be great. And it's just he's, occurred he's to my me. Mate. I know he's your mate, Kieran. And, we, and he, yeah, there are certain issues in any relationship that you just have to live with, don't you? <laughs> we all have we all have things about our partners that we just have to go. All right, I still love them despite that fact. It just occurred to me the, the United Arab Emirates football team. Surely should be called Arab Emirates United. That'd be a much better name for a football team, <laughs> yes. wouldn't it? Um, our first question, Kieran, is a really interesting one because we talk in our book, the, the upcoming book, um, "An Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club," about ownership models, and one of which is, is Stoke City. We talk a lot about Stoke City and Bet Three Six Five, but this is something that's never actually occurred to me during. All the discussion we had when we talked about them uh, off air, so to speak, and it comes from Jordan Beck, and and Jordan says my question is about Stoke City and their owners Bet Three Six Five, which I've kind of given away. Does there have to be some sort of firewall between Bet Three Six Five and the group that actually runs Stoke City? Not that this would ever happen, but could the fact that a bookmaker owning a football club raise a question mark about the integrity of the matches they're involved in? Book is giving more favourable odds on Stoke matches to persuade more people to bet on them, driving viewers towards their club, or Lord forbid, affecting the outcome of matches. And as, as Jordan said, that would never happen. But it's 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 an interesting, again, you know, it's a rhetorical question. Kim. We haven't we haven't really got time for existential questions, but now I'm asking you a rhetorical question. But it, I think it's one that's worth discussing. I agree with Jordan's comments. It is absolutely critical that there is a very noticeable dividing line between owner and football club because the the ownership group could have access to insider information in terms of tactics, formations, uh, injuries, and so on, and they could use that when uh, when forming their book. Um, so. If you take a look, yeah, and it is slightly unusual that we've got three, I think it's yeah, fairly senior teams, yeah, Brentford, Stoke and Brighton, who are all owned by people connected to the gambling industry. Um, these people are fully aware that they are under scrutiny. Not only are they under scrutiny from football fans, but they're under scrutiny from the rest of the, the betting industry as well. It is a very competitive industry. And there are reasonably good relations between the different gambling companies because they they share data in terms of gambling patterns. You know, when, when we've seen unusual baton, betting uh, patterns reported, it's because they, they do collaborate. And, and, that, and that, there's an element of self-interest there because they, they want to make sure that um, the integrity of the game, which is in their interest, because if once people stop believing in the integrity of the game, then there's no point in putting on, putting on bets. Um, so everything is monitored, and, and that would include the patterns given in terms of the odds being offered. And you, you've only got to use products such as Odds Checker, and you can see you know, how much you can get at Bet365 compared to Betway, compared to William Hill, um, and, and so on. So I think that would very quickly become evident if Bet365 were offering more advantageous odds in respect of Stoke City. Um and also, given that there is legislation, given that there's a lot of scrutiny as far as the industry is concerned, and in my opinion, you know, people say that football players have been the biggest beneficiaries of the growth of the Premier League. And that, you know, we've just said you know, 3,600% increase in wages. They have been significant beneficiaries, but they are not the most beneficial part- partners. It is, in fact, the gambling companies. If you take a look at the, the rise in revenue in football, football bets since the Premier League started. And yes, this is partly a function of the increased number of matches being broadcast, which the betting companies don't directly have any influence. Uh, also, you know, the rise of the smartphone and the ability to, to gamble in play, um, the 
the gambling companies have have celebrated that and and they've they've benefited financially. If you take a look at Bet 365's income since 1990, well, since since it started, which I think was around about 2001, 2002, whatever it was, I've I've, I've got the data for every single year, yeah. and it's it is it is spectacular growth, it's phenomenal, and yeah. it, it has provided employment in Stoke. You know, so I'm, I'm, you know, people say I'm I'm anti gambling. I'm not. I'm I'm anti some of the bad practices in the gambling industry. But Bet365 is a very successful organisation. Um, and, I, yeah, personally, I, I like the fact that it's owned by somebody local. You know, I've, I've, that's, you know, I've always said that uh, having having that link and, and that sense of belongings uh, are positive. So, But the gambling industry has benefited from football. And, and anything which called that into question in terms of, the lack of integrity of the game. I think the the gambling industry potentially could be the biggest loss, the biggest losers there. So they they do try to ensure that there is distance between themselves and the relationships that they have with clubs. And I think we need to point out that Stoke City, funded by Bet Three Six Five, do an incredible amount of community work in the in the, the Potteries area in, in in Staffordshire, an area that by a lot of criteria is one of the most struggling in the country in terms yeah. of uh, low income unemployment health figures etc so that that needs to be pointed out i, I was I gonna... used to run a, a potteries company when which had gone of into administration co- of course you did yeah big old kill and yeah, yeah it was it, it was tough yeah and and you know the people the people there were absolutely fantastic um and, and then of course you've got oatcakes which are a, a, a wonderful creation. Where would we be without oatcakes and and the, and the great city of Stoke, which is famous for them? And, indeed, and you have one of those football rivalries that both sides are infuriated by. It never gets mentioned when people talk about football rivalries. Stoke and Port Vale is is just astonishing. There's never been a documentary about people talk about Palace and Brighton. My God, I remember. I remember I probably mentioned this before when we did They Think It's All Over and Nick Hancock, the host, is one of my oldest, dearest friends. We had Phil the Power Taylor on, who was the world darts champion at the time, one of the most successful sports people in the world. And Hancock wouldn't speak to him for the entire programme. Everything had to be directed through a bemused Phil Tufnell because he he simply (laughs) wouldn't talk directly to a Port Vale fan, which was... uh, Hilarious. I was was also going to say I don't use Odds Checker as a product, but I'd be lying because... Normally, about the middle of February, I start to anxiously check whether William Hill think Palace are going down or not, and then allow myself a couple of nights sleep because we're not favourites. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion... You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football, and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Gareth Slater. Um, no, I beg, I beg your pardon. Yossi Siegel has our next question. And Yossi Siegel has a question that I think at the start of the season, many people were asking about uh, Chelsea. 
And the Aussie Seagull specifically says, my question is about Michaelo Mudrick's eight-and-a-half-year contract with Chelsea. The current FIFA regulations, uh, open brackets, Article 18 of the FIFA regulations for the status and transfer of players, uh, open more brackets, RSTP, close those brackets and close the original brackets. What have we done, Kieran, that people, (laughs) ordinary football fans now know about regulations, Article 18? What have you done to the people? As Yoshi points out, those regulations stipulate that a contract can only be for a maximum of five years unless the length of the fixed contract is permitted by the respective national legislation, open brackets, see below, close brackets. I had a quick gander at the UK's employment legislation, and it seems as though the allowable fixed contract time is four years. Would you be able to tell me how Chelsea, open brackets, or any other club, close brackets, is able to sign players on such long contracts and this I think along with the the question about how Chelsea are able to sign so many players Kieran I think this is a question many football fans especially those fans of clubs other than Chelsea have been asking. Yeah I think this is a uh, a valid question Yossi. Uh, My understanding of UK employment law is that you can sign a contract for whatever period you choose and therefore there is no um, there, there is no four-year limit. And this has allowed clubs such as Chelsea to go into the market and sign players. Yeah, the, the 30th of June, 2031, I think Chelsea now have about six or seven players who will, will be out of contract on that particular date. Um, and uh, you know, it, it does seem initially to be very strange. But... I cannot see from my knowledge, and, and you know, employment law is not, not, not an area which, I, which I'm particularly aware of, that there is any reason why the uh, registration cannot go to that period. And therefore, Chelsea are within the rules. And also looking back, we have historically had players on 10-year contracts. I remember in, in 1982, Brighton uh, put Steve Foster and Michael Robinson both on 10-year contracts Um which, which was great for the next 12 months until we were relegated. And, and then the club was, was in genuine uh, traumatic times because there were no parachute payments in those days. Um, and as a second-tier club, they couldn't afford to pay the wages. They got rid of Robinson straight away. Yeah, Michael Robinson was sold straight away in that summer to Liverpool. But Steve Foster was, was a huge issue because he was on a, a very lucrative contract in, in the second tier of English football. I, I can't tell you, Kieran, if... If if I had to choose between Steve Foster, Brian Horton, and Peter Ward, I can't tell you which of them I hated more as a Palace fan. I think Brian Horton probably just ahead of Steve because at least Steve Foster had the headband, which slightly mitigated circumstances. Although he looked, he always looked like a teacher trying to be cool. Um, <laughs> fixed contracts, things may well have changed since I worked in human resources, but employers and. Um, Employment lawyers tend not to like fixed contracts very much because um, you have to be very confident in the abilities of the person you're taking on for a five-year period that they're going to be good enough for those five years. It, it, it does tend to tie you down. Um, to you know, you, you, Your recruitment strategy has to be very good, let's put it that way. Although things may well have changed, Kieran, because it's, been, it, it, it's not even personnel anymore, is it? It's been so long ago, I can't remember how, whether it's two S's or two N's in personnel. That's how long ago it is since I've been in it. Gareth Slater has a, a very interesting question, I think, Kieran. Uh, and it's about multi-club ownership and amortisation. Gareth asks this, if a multi-club group signs a player for five years and moves them from one team in the group to another in the same group within those five years, would the group cover the amortisation over the full five years or do the two clubs cover them separately including any transfer fee between those two clubs within the group. Yeah, this, this is a this is a group accounting question and, and it it does allow scope for manipulation. So, I'm currently holding a pen in one hand. So, let's say that I I, I can, bought I a can pen. confirm that to our yeah. listeners who may doubt your methods, but yes, he is holding a pen in one hand. I've got a pen held in my, my left hand. So I'm going to set up a, a company called Left Hand Limited. <laughs> and I've got another company called Right Hand Limited. And if I, if I own both of those companies, I could sell my pen in my left hand 
to my pen in my right hand for a million pounds and effectively make a million pounds profit for Left Hand Co. And that's perfectly legal. There will be tax implications. But from a group point of view, you say, what did the pen originally cost to the group? So the fact that I've sold it to my right hand for a million pounds, in the books of the right hand company, it's shown at a million pounds. But in the books of the group, you say, what was the original cost? So individual clubs can make profits on player sales. And individual clubs are responsible for the amortization. But from the MCO point of view, from the group point of view, it's always based on how much the player cost when they originally entered the group. Now, that's interesting. In in terms of real-life business outside of football, Kieran, if if right hand there was to sell that pen for a million pounds to left hand there, is there any independent body that would be looking at the valuation of that or is is you know is the law quite happy with the fact that you you value your own product you you put your own value on it because in in football of course especially commercial deals you know UEFA will be looking at whether that's a fair valuation so in in the outside world are there similar people doing the same thing there's not but HMRC do take a look at all related party transactions to see whether or not they are at fair value. Because we've had these accusations, haven't we? The fact that you and I both pay more tax than Facebook do in the UK, and yet Facebook seems to have, you know, know, I'm I'm using Facebook as, as a potential example. There's other tech companies who have their European HQs in Dublin or Luxembourg, and all of the profits of those groups seem to be in countries such as Ireland, yeah, where the rate of corporation tax is 12.5%. So, so the tax authorities do monitor this. If you are looking at buying a company from a mergers and acquisitions point of view, again, if I was advising that company, I would say, let's take a look at the proportion of sales, which are to other parts of, of the group to which that entity currently belongs. Because it is very easy to massage numbers, both upwards and downwards, through using what's referred to as transfer pricing. It's where one company in a group sells goods and services to another, and you can park the profits, and therefore you potentially, if you want to abuse the system, you can park the tax tax costs in in the company which has the lowest rate of tax in the country in which it's based. Yeah, uh, I probably am paying more tax than Facebook, but I doubt if Facebook are paying their tax on a month-by-month basis, uh, trying to catch up from three years ago. Uh, speaking of which, um, Left Hand Pen Co. seems to be quite uh, flash with the cash. So I've got a pen here, Kieran, that I'm willing to offer to your left hand for £50,000. <laughs> up to you. Take it or leave it. Peter Marriott has our next question. Um, and in a different world, this would have been a question about the new owner of Manchester United. Uh, but Peter Marriott says, my question relates to Sir Jim Ratcliffe, a man like Mike Ashley, who has brought undervalued businesses and made them profitable. I said brought there, I should have said bought, Kieran. But, um, so he's bought undervalued businesses and made them profitable. Opposed to the likes of Man City, but similar to Red Bull, Ineos operate a multi-club model with Nice and FC Lausanne, but across multiple sports with ownership or headline sponsors in a series of sports, including cycling, Formula One and sailing. How does this differ from other football clubs with other sports such as Real Madrid and Barcelona with their basketball teams or PSG and their handball team? And are these for Ineos financially beneficial to the brand or more vanity projects for Sir Jim Ratcliffe or even greenwashing with Ineos being a large chemical manufacturing company and now car manufacturer? Yes, trying to work out Jim Ratcliffe's motivations with regards to this are complex. Um, He has responsibility towards the shareholders of Ineos to deliver profits for them, to to deliver a return on their investment. At the same time, he has been the driving force behind the success of Ineos in the same way that Mike Ashley has been the driving force in in terms of his ability to to spot undervalued brands. Um, I, I think this is more of Sir Jim reaching a certain age in life and and wanting 
some form of legacy because when you're worth billions upon billions you yeah you know we've always said you can only live in one house at once you can only drive one car at once what what's the point in having money uh, beyond a certain level so I, I think this is a case of wanting a trophy asset um having a form of strategy by going through the multi-club ownership model but ultimately I, I i don't think this is to to make money because football inherently is a loss-making business um i think you can say the same with regards to formula one i've i whilst I, I don't talk about formula one i i do have the accounts of every single formula one company <laughs> on another spreadsheet why well, I had a spare few minutes, <laughs> so My, it's a case of yeah. I, 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 I just, but I just been through a really tough uh, campaign on Zelda, and I was sort of struggling a bit on <laughs> on a couple of the shrines. So I said, "Oh, I can't stop. Yeah. But most people will go and listen to some music or watch the telly or read a book. But me, I'll I'll create a new spreadsheet for another sport. Yeah, I, I have a theory about Formula One, Kieran, on the radio, which if is the most <laughs> it's the most bizarre sport to have on the radio and my theory is that five live don't actually have the rights but what they do is put some sound effects on essentially and watch the telly because <laughs> it's just such a, i mean i listen to most sports here it's not my favorite sport i can't drive for, for a start <laughs> <laughs> but, but just listening to cars listen you, you really are taking out on trust i mean you're taking every sport on trust to an extent <laughs> But you're just listening to the sound effect of a car going really fast. It's a quite um, <clears throat> meandering again, which again is why I wouldn't be a good Formula One driver. You can't don't <laughs> meander around the track at the Nurburgring, or which has probably not been a race course since 1938, I imagine. Richard D has our next question, and it's about loans taken by football clubs, but with the focus on the lender. And this, I, I know for a fact, this question was asked some time ago, Kieran, but it's been rendered topical by potential events at Everton um, with 777. And Richard says, I remember on previous podcasts that general financial institutions, such as the well-known banks, don't normally lend to football clubs due to the risks involved, and also from a brand perspective, should the loan be defaulted. So my question is, are lenders who do lend to football clubs subject to regulations such as the FCA regulations, or to put it another way, how do football clubs ensure that the lender is a reputable one and is not effectively borrowing from a loan shark, for instance? Well, it's an excellent question, yeah. Richard, and the answer to this is it depends. Oh. Um, anybody and their brother or sister could have lent money to a football club and until uh, a few years ago when the the rules were changed in relation to borrowing based borrowing secured on future broadcast revenues so so this was something that was introduced by the premier league and that's why we saw um with the press release from everton where it said that farhad mashiri was aiming to sell his majority stake to 777 partners uh, but it would have to be approved by the Premier League, we're aware of that. The Football Association, which effectively rubber stamps whatever the Premier League does. And then the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. And a few people said to me, what's that for? I said, well, by the sounds of it, uh, it looks as if 777 will be looking to strike some form of deal with regards to borrowing secured on future broadcast revenues. And, and that is a, a rule which was introduced by the Premier League probably about eight or nine years ago. So, so that has been introduced to try to give a little bit more security. But you can still have other loans, either secured on different assets, such as transfer fees, or unsecured loans from... And I'm not going to call these people loan sharks because I don't think that would be appropriate and that would be cynical. And as we've always said, we're not a cynical uh, show. But if we take a look at Bolton Wanderers, Bolton Wanderers, before they went into administration during the, the, the Ken Anderson clown show years, um, they were borrowing from a company called Sport Shield and they were paying 24% interest. We've got West Bromwich Albion who have borrowed, we said this, yeah, this seems very strange. They borrowed from a company called Warmfront Holdings and they are paying interest on that loan presently, if assuming the loan's not being repaid, at 5% a month. And if you compound that, that works out as 76% interest a year. So 
yeah, that is into the realm of um, you know, loan sharking, I think, uh, in, in terms of the rates. It also potentially re- reflects the degree of risk that lenders would give to an institution such as West Bromwich Albion under the ownership of Gouch and Lye. Um, which, which, which is the separate issue, and we know, you know, our friend like Ali, and, and uh, yeah, we know Adrian Charles is very emotional about this as well, and, and, and understandably so because the uh, West Brom's in a fairly precarious position. So, we there is regulation in relation to certain types of borrowing by football clubs, but it is still possible to borrow from the owner at exorbitant rates. It's possible to borrow from third parties at exorbitant rates um, and there is a case for saying there should be there should be greater protection for the game but you then go into a position similar to, to personal finance um, there are an awful lot of loan sharks who will lend to vulnerable individuals because the, the, the regular banks won't so if you know let, let let's say that you're a person who's who's on the breadline, and you know the your pipes freeze and and you know, you've got a flood. Who how are you going to pay for that? Because you might not have an insurance policy because you can't afford it. You can't go to the banks because the banks will turn you down. So you end up going to a loan shock because there are no alternatives. So the same applies to football clubs. There is no central fund. Ultimately. Clubs are companies. They're bound by their own constitutions. Um, if you set up a central fund within football, if you've got rogue owners, and we do have rogue owners, and we know who those rogue owners are, then they could take advantage of this, and, and they could borrow from the central fund, and then you know, delay repay and so on. Um, and that central fund could quickly run out of funds. So, trying to work out. A solution for this is is very difficult. It, it's it's indicative of a much broader issue in terms of funding across a variety of industries. Mm. Was that Finley coming in or going out? He, he was coming in. Oh, he was coming in. I think he's just wonky chomped for the morning. Oh, good boy! He's always he's replete with wonky chomps, is he? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you may have heard a door closing in the background during the answer to that question, uh, Kieran. That was Ali trying to sneak out. She's she's <laughs> off to a gig in Southend. She's that girl. I love her very much, but sneaking is not her <laughs> biggest skill. Um, yeah, just, well, would you want a wife whose greatest skill was sneaking? No, fair point, Kieran. No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. As we discussed, Kieran, about um, lending and borrowing, as you explained just a couple of pods ago, it, it's quite standard practice in football and in business for right hand penco to borrow a lot of money from left hand penco. Um, and then lend it to Kevin Day Penko at slightly higher interest. So, you know, the, it, it 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 sort of came as news to me in a strange, naive sort of way that a, a lot of the people that are lending money to football clubs have borrowed it themselves to lend to make money themselves, which makes the loans even more um, dodgy, doesn't it? I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Following the money is hard work. You know, somebody that used to do sort of forensic accounting many, many years ago when I was an accountant. Um, it, it was challenging then, very challenging then, because it was pre-internet days, so you had to go through yeah. pen and paper, of yeah. course. Um, and what we have now is that you can instantly transfer money globally, and once you hit, for want of a better phrase, tax havens, the likes of BVI, the, the likes of the Cayman Islands and Bahamas, Information trails stop immediately, yeah. and it becomes a lot, lot more difficult to, to, to get behind the, to, to lift the curtain of, of the ultimate funders of some of these loans. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Sean Smith. And it's about the finances of artificial pitches. Now, we spoke last week to Dave Ginn, who's the chairman of Clandidna uh, FC, about the um, the fact that his club nearly went under due to the finances of artificial pitches. Hopefully you heard it. It's a very emotional interview and a very interesting one. 
Um, but we did say within that pod that Clandidnar fans may be interested in this question because it does put some um, meat on the bone, which has always struck me as a strange thing to be able to do. It's putting meat back on the bone is a very strange, odd thing, sort of thing that Lisa Simpson would create a whole episode of that wonderful cartoon out of. Um, but Sean Smith says, my local team, Bromley Football Club, not far from me here, are in the National League and play on a 4G pitch. As I understand it, if they were to be promoted into the EFL, they would need to replace the 4G pitch with traditional grass. That bit is true, Sean. Where lower teams in both the National League and the EFL League are struggling financially, would it not be a good time to allow teams in the lower leagues to play on a 4G pitch as they have no ground staff costs and can rent the pitches out to local teams in the community to raise money? Also, do you know the revenue generated annually from hiring the pitches out? And would Bromley Football Club be worse off financially if they were promoted due to having to replace the 4G pitch with grass? This is also an issue in in Scottish football, Kieran, where the the bigger teams really don't like having to play on uh, artificial pitches that are allowed, I think, in the Scottish Premier League, aren't they? That, that's correct. So you, you've got the likes of Livingston and Kilmarnock who, who do play with 4G pitches. Um, and I think in Scotland... A, there is the issue of we, we've often spoken about you know, monetizing the stadium. You know, the fact that it's it's football is a dumb industry. If you if you take a look, you know, Apple brought out the iPhone on Friday, and if you if you look, I was I was in London with the with the Baroness, and we went past the Apple store, and the the queues were around the block for people wanting to get uh, the, the the product. So, and it, it will make. Apple will have made more money from that one day sales of iPhones from just one London store than probably thirty football clubs will generate in the whole season. Yeah, you know, it's so so it, it, it's it, it's a crazy industry because football isn't open. So by making it more open, it does increase income streams. It also means that you can uh, offer uh, opportunities for kids. And yeah, you know, we've often said yeah, you, know, you, you get you get the fan at the age of seven, and you've still got the fan at the age of seventy. So it's it's a way of building up relationships, building up fan bases. The actual total income generated from the four G pitches, I don't know, but I did go into Sutton United's accounts in twenty twenty one this morning. I, I do get up early, um, <laughs> and and it cost them three hundred thousand pounds to. Uh, you know, effectively rip up the pitch. That's that's the loss to them of of ha- having that. And of course, they they missed out when they were promoted from the National League to the EFL because it took time to to rip, a rip up the pitch and b re- put down a grass pitch, an appropriate pitch, and then of course to make sure that that pitch was in a in a fit state to play football. So they they ended up, I think, playing their first few fixtures away from home, which was, which is such a shame because you know the, the great achievement of getting to the EFL. Was was lost because you had to wait a little bit extra. It's the same with with Luton. You know, I think yeah, they they had to do some upgrades and and they would have wanted their first game um, at at, uh, at the Premier League to have been been at Kenworth Road. And you absolutely understand that emotional point of perspective. Um, but as as far as as Scotland is concerned, there's a separate issue, and that's that's the weather. Um, the fear is that if you had grass pitches, you'd lose far more fixtures. If if you take Livingston for example, um, and and this isn't this isn't a sort of some snide comment from me. You've got, I actually read it from from, the, from somebody at the club. Um, the grass doesn't grow in the winter because they're in they're in a valley. Yeah, the, the location of of the ground is such that the sun hardly gets there, so you end up running the risk of effectively playing on rolled mud, um, and pitches becoming frozen and unplayable. Um, that, that you've got a greater chance. Doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not a, it's not an all weather surface, but you've got a greater chance of being able to to host a match um, if there is uh, you know, a three or four G pitch. So so there are benefits. Why do uh, the EFL not change the rules? Well, ultimately, the EFL is a members association, and if the members vote to change the rules, then they will be changed. There is uh, there is doubt. I think, yeah, as somebody that, that has played at uh, at Oldham Athletics Ground when they used to have a, uh, you know, an old version. I, I played there in nineteen ninety one, something like that. 
Um, it was it was horrible. It was genuinely horrible playing on that pitch, you know, trying to get used to the bounce uh, and so on. So you can understand the the reservations that people might have. But technology has moved on uh, over the course of the last 30 years. So I think there, there is certainly a case. There is a financial case for having it. It's whether or not you can persuade enough club owners to change the rules. And if you're already in the EFL, why would you change the rules? Because you've already got a grass pitch, you've already made your decision. Um, but I think, you know, certainly at League Two level, there's there's no reason why why you can't have more clubs saying, actually, if we do our sums, we, we could financially benefit and it will help us to build our fan base. Just a couple of months before Sutton United were promoted, um, which again, uh, like Bromley, is just down the road to me, but in a different direction, obviously. Uh, well, not obviously, if you live in America. Um but I, w- I was doing some filming at Sutton United with uh, Perry Groves. I'll just I'll just pause while you pick that name up there, Kieran. Come come back to me when you've got a job where you get to work with Perry Groves on a Wednesday morning in Sutton. But I got talking to a couple of the the, the owners, directors of the club, and they said there were there were genuinely people uh, around Sutton United who said we should we should throw the last few games because getting to the EFL. It's going to cost us so much money because it's 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 not just the the cost of removing the pitch and replacing it with a, a grass pitch to EFL standards, which are very high, as discussed in a book that's about to head your way uh, in just a few weeks' time. But you also lose out on so much income because you can't hire it out to to local teams, to local people who just want to kick about on a on a you know Wednesday afternoon. So they can say they've played on a you know, a proper football club's pitch, and you also have to find somewhere for your your youth teams, your women's team, your disability team uh, to train. So that that costs a lot of money as well. So it's it's an interesting debate because with the quality of the four G pitches these days, Kieran, as Dave Ginnett Clandid no pointed out to us, it it isn't like those terrible old days when it was almost like playing on on concrete that we saw at Luton and QPR and, and Oldham, the quality is very good. And, the, you know, the National League standards for for pitches are, are as high as the EFL League standards. So it, it seems just, I, I can't quite understand the opposition from clubs already in League One and Two to this, this happening. Yeah. Football clubs are inherently conservative. Yeah, yeah. And they will say... Let's take a look at let's take a look at the footage of QPR in 1986. Yeah, of course. Oh, it was rubbish in 1986. Nothing, nothing's happened in the world since then. <laughs> so therefore, it must be identical. Yeah, fair point. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Govinda Vim, um, and it's again, it's one of those questions we've already had a couple of topics are very, very discussed on match days and beyond by football fans, and this one is about West Ham Stadium which is, from our point of view, a gift that keeps on giving, Kieran, because it seems that there are countless angles we've still yet to cover. And Govinda Vim says, my question is about the West Ham Stadium deal. You said that the running costs of the stadium are £18 million and West Ham pay rent of £3.5 million a year. So it seems like West Ham get a benefit of £14.5 million a year. However, is that £18 million of cost to run the stadium for 365 days of use? or for the 23 days that West Ham used the stadium. I don't believe it can cost £18 million a year to run a football stadium for 23 match days, and the London Stadium has other events and concerts. So is it right that West Ham pay rent for more than 23 days of usage? Um, they they pay the rent for the the matches which they in which they participate. With regards to the, the overall running costs... Um, if you take a look at the accounts of East E20 Stadium LLC, which again my Sunday mornings are the envy of the rest of the world, <laughs> I, I suspect, um, you will find that uh, the running costs are high because E20 um, signed what what we refer to as an onerous contract. An onerous contract is where um, you are uh, you effectively renting out something. And you've made such a hash of the deal, and you're locked into it for a long period of time. And West Ham, I think it's a 250 year deal that they've got. Wow, is it? Um, oh yeah, wow. yeah. It's 
it's it's ridiculously long lease. So um, that it, it's you you've just made an, an absolute horlicks of it. So to give you an example, um, I, w- I was looking at the most recent E twenty accounts, and they've already made losses of over three hundred million pounds. And you say, well, okay, well, that, that's that's a shame. You don't like any company to make a loss. Um, you're, you're a you're a rates payer in London. You're you know, that that's that's part of your your local taxes are going to, to cover those losses. Um, they they had a seven million pound floodlit upgrade. Now West Ham have benefited from that, but West Ham didn't have to pay a penny. Yeah. So you know it's, it's things like that. Um, they've got an agreement with UK Athletics that uh, when the, when there's uh, an athletics tournament, there's normally you know there's been some fairly significant athletics tournaments taking place post Olympics, is that E20 Stadium are responsible for the reconfiguration of the seats because for some of these sports you you've, you you put in the running track and therefore you have to remove seats and then you have to go and put them back in again. That costs an absolute fortune. And UK athletics are only paying in around about one to one and a quarter million pounds a year for hosting it. And uh, Govinda says, well, what about the money coming from hosting events? It's it's possibly not as much as people think because um, E20 Stadium made eight million pounds in total of revenue, of which 3.7 came from uh, West Ham. I think about one and a quarter came from UK Athletics, they probably made three million pounds from the rest of the year, and that's hiring out facilities, that's uh, catering, conferencing, and so on. So, it's it, it's a, it's, you know, it's the old white elephant story in, in the sense that it was great to host the Olympics. I attended events, that you attended events. Yeah, we, we're both born in London. We're both proud to be born in London, especially uh, you know during that that four weeks. But the legacy costs, which are always completely ignored or conveniently ignored by the, the, the marketing consultants and the PR agencies who, who write the glossy brochures, which are, which are pitched to the IOC, who make the final decision, um, that, those, that those numbers uh, tend to be uh, glossed over. Um, I, I had a rather pleasant Homer Simpson thought bubble moment while you were answering that question, Kieran where um, Homer explains to David Sullivan and Karen Brady about the onerous contract. And David Sullivan and Karen Brady say, well, we are the onerous of West Ham United. So uh, (laughs) this is the sort of thing that keeps me going of a morning, Kieran. Our final question um, is about something close to your heart, Kieran. So I'll be really interested in your answer to this. And it comes from Callum McGee. And Callum says, has the Markham multivariate model for valuing football clubs become redundant since COVID-19 brought stadium attendances to virtually zero throughout the pandemic? If not, does the model get used as one of the valuation techniques when considering a club takeover? Um, I, I know Tom. Uh, I've, I've read his paper on many occasions. Um, Tom. And Tom, Tom Markham. Sorry, Tom, Tom Markham. Sorry, yeah, Tom Markham. Uh, and in fact, we've had him on the show. Yeah. It's an interesting model. In my view, it's a fundamentally flawed model. Oh, okay. The, the, the positives about it is that it's, it's relatively quick and easy. It's understandable. And you can you can do it for all of the 20 clubs. And, it, and you get a nice graph and a nice table. And, and you can do comparative analysis um, on it. But it, 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 to me, it doesn't actually work. It, but no models really work ultimately because it's based on historic information. So it's, you're always looking in the rear view mirror with regards to football clubs. And ultimately, the value of a football club is about its future. So, so I think that is uh, an issue. And, and if you are looking in that rear view mirror, then you're ignoring the fact that you might have just been promoted or you might have just been relegated. And we know that has a, a, a sea change as far as a club's finances are concerned. Um, it, it's also subject to the volatility in, in football in, in terms of things such as player sales. So if, if, you, t- if you take a look at uh, when Palace sold Aaron Wan-Bissaka, you know, they sold him on the 30th of June uh, to Manchester United. Was it 2021, 2020, whenever it was? Uh, and they made a £45 million profit, and that's great. But that has a huge impact upon the valuation of the club in that particular year. If they'd sold him 24 hours later the value of the club would have been far, far lower. Um, and yet, yet they'd still sold the player. 
So, so you know, it seems that it seems strange. You know, a twenty-four hour difference can have such a, an impact. So, it, it's it, it's a fun model. You know, I, I still I still use it, but I, I always say to people, you've got to approach it with a great degree of caution because of its inherent limitations. I, I don't know where you'd get the time, Kieran, but surely somewhere sitting on a bus or a, an airplane, you've doodled thoughts yourself for a, a model for valuing football clubs. Have you? Yes, I, I can't. I, I have been doing a little bit of work with somebody quite senior in football. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I can't say any more than that. Right, okay. And, and ultimately, it will be a flawed model like they all are. Yeah, so that's interesting. So you, as the country's leading football finance uh, accountant, for want of a better word, teacher, whatever, guru, saint, I don't know what, hero, whatever the, the appropriate term is, it's in weed. <laughs> but it's interesting to hear you say you don't think there will ever be a, a, an effectively working model for this. No, and, and the reason why I say this is that football, um, if, if I'm looking at the motor industry, if, if I'm looking at the, the mobile phone or, or the tech industry, um, all of the owners have exactly the same objective, which is success in terms of sales of products you know yeah you know, we're talking about apple earlier yeah well apple just brought out the iphone 15 uh, i know how much money that they're generating from those sales and they are aiming to uh, maximize revenues minimize costs and, and on the back of that uh generate cash flows and, and and i can do that i can do projections going forwards um roman abramovich at chelsea shake mansour at uh, at Manchester City, even even Steve Parrish at Crystal Palace, their objective is not to maximise the profits of those businesses. You know, Steve Parrish was a to, to stabilise Palace, given the the, yeah. the historic challenges the club had had, and then yes, the ambition was to get in the Premier League and then stay in the Premier League. Finances are an issue, but they are not the driving issue. Whereas if you take a look at practically every other business, they are profit maximisers. We said this before, when Manchester City played Chelsea in the 2021 Champions League final, those were the two biggest loss-making clubs in the history, not just of English football, but world football. And yet, everybody that you talk to connected with the club thought it was a great thing. And you go, well, well, Abramovich is happy because he's just won the Champions League. The players are happy because they're on... They're on the salaries commensurate with that. The fans are happy yeah. because they've seen the club win. The the executives are happy because their bonuses are, are tied into uh, success on the pitch. So, as, as an accountant, you go as a, as a you know, traditional person from a traditional finance background, you go, "Well, they're absolutely awful. You know, you, you've lost nine hundred thousand pounds a week for nineteen years." And you go, "Well, yeah, that's a crazy way to run a business." Nobody, nobody connected with the institution is unhappy. Yeah. Well, I suppose if the people connected with the institution can afford to lose that sort of money, they, they don't even notice it. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. And you can get access to our chat community and our regular quizzes, and you can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. Our next live chat on our Discord channel is available exclusively to our ultras, and that will be on Thursday the 28th of September from 7 till 8 p.m. A whole hour of questions, Kieran. Uh, if you're a Fulham fan, best not. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Uh, three dates have now been confirmed, as we said before, for our Price of Football live show in the coming weeks. We look forward to seeing you at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool on October the 12th, the Lowry Theatre in Salford on October the 22nd, and the Roy Yacht on Jersey on November the 7th. To get your tickets, go to priceoffootball.com or to the individual venues and websites. And finally, if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfitted in Proper Persons, An Idiot's Guide to Owning a Football Club, or one of our other books, or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt, you can also find details on our website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on um, Thursday with our usual uh, news pod. I think about that there, Kieran. Thursday with our usual news pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. 
Well, thank you as always to everybody for the way that they support the show and and also the feedback that you give to us. Yeah, we we if you send us an email, we do read it and we will try to reply and we, we take on board uh, bits and pieces. Um, and yeah, that, that that applies to Twitter as well. I've, I've been I've been <laughs> I've, I've I've been held to task and rightly so. Um, there's another well, Kieran, one. Kieran, if, if you, I have to say, if you will go around congratulating the opposition team after losing, then you're going to get yourself in trouble on Twitter, aren't you? I mean, that's you've, you've been on Twitter long enough to know you don't do simple, gentlemanly things like that without expecting some sort of kickback from people who are less gentlemanly than yourself in the same way that our good friend Julian Chenery, uh, <laughs> who's producing our live shows and has been listening from the very start, made the fatal, but I believe deliberate mistake, uh, as a Palace fan, of offering his congratulations to Brighton before your game in Europe, saying that he wished them well and hoped that they represented the rest of the f- football outs. What, what was he expecting? Of course he's going to get stick, Kieran. It's, 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 it's the same as you saying well done to Ike Athens for beating us fair and square. It's, you don't understand social media. You're too, you're too innocent, man. Too innocent. Uh, well, we were beaten by the Greeks, so I thought I'd be a Corinthian. Oh, very good. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm available. I'm available. There are people that may think we were building up to that. How was your Greek meal, by the way, before... Um, I imagine you were smashing some plates after the game, Kieran, but how was the meal beforehand? <laughs> oh, it was it was huge. Oh, it was, <laughs> yeah, it made, made, made the... Uh, we, we made the... Oh, we, we'll go for the, the, uh, the, the small platter. Um... Well, it wasn't. You know, well, the, 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 it was a large platter, to put it mildly. And then I'd ordered a, uh, a another sort of main course. Yeah, it, it was it was it was great food, great food. So yeah, yeah. I don't know how you Zorbers can, and Lewis. I don't know how you can eat before stuff. a football game. I just, I, I too. Well, d- you drink. Well, I drink. That's to calm the nerves, Kieran. But you know, eating on a yeah. <laughs> anyway, how what are the other ways, Kieran, that people can uh, show their approval yeah. of our podcast? I, and, and if people in London are wondering, how come here yeah, they're, they're going to Manchester? They're going to Blackpool. They're going to Jersey. We are coming to London. We will be confirming that date as well fairly soon. We um, but there, there's another way that you can support the show, and, and that's that's to give us a review. It helps us in the charts. It helps us uh, in terms of credibility when we're trying to persuade people to come on the show. Um, and all that matters is that you give a review. It doesn't actually impact in terms of the words that you use. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Perry Groves and Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> I think that will be a great meeting of minds. I, I think that, actually, I think that's one of the, the ones I would listen to. I, I'd, I'd like that. Yeah. Perry would definitely do it. There's there's not a job. Oh, yeah. Perry wouldn't turn that job down. <laughs> You'd be one syllable in to ask him. Yep, yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the